Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking Mickey Mouse courses, international students, complaints, and the big reset at number 10. It's all coming up. It might be okay if you're an 18 year old and you've got, you know, sufficient funds that it doesn't matter where you study and you don't need to rely on a part time job and you haven't got caring responsibilities. But obviously, there is a real diversity in students' experience and what they need to be successful at university. So I, I think there's that angle too in terms of the. Um Welcome to The Walkie Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Walkie's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, reporting from Walkie's Buzzing HQ, also known as my spare room. And here to help me unpeel the higher education policy onion this week, I have three brilliant guests. Later, you'll hear from Public First, Jonathan Simons. And here in the virtual studio, I have Selina Bolingbrook, a fellow at the Helping Partnership, Selina Uh, Your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Mark. I think my highlight was actually at the end of last week where I was in the company of 6,000 other guests at the first online KindFest digital festival with five different tents of kindness thoughts in terms of different parts of your life, finishing up with a live rendition of the uh, Milkman of Human Kindness by uh, Billy Bragg. There was nothing that was going to beat that. It looked amazing. I thought Private Eyes write-up was a bit miserly. Uh, It did look like an absolutely fantastic event. Uh, Credit to everyone who put that together. Um, And we have Paul Inman, uh, PVC International at the University of Reading. Paul, your highlight of the week, please. Yeah, hi, Mark. Um, In my my other life, I'm uh, Chair of Trustees of Photo Oxford, which is an international photography festival um, that the city holds. And uh, we, uh, we managed to hold a festival in lockdown well in lockdown and in lockdown plus um so the fact that we even got to the end of it so we had a meeting with trustees last night and and not smug but the fact that we actually got a festival online and it with events in the city was a, a tremendous achievement and all without arts council funding fantastic and we're just looking at how to do wonkfest in a similar context it's going to be it's going to be different right we begin this week with the question of quality and value we've had a glut of reports first of all um ofs ha- uh, released a consultation about this and uk put out a big statement Selina, what is going on? Well, um, the consultation is really, I suppose, seen as attempts to balance two recent ministerial agendas, that of addressing low quality courses and removing bureaucratic burden. Uh, The consultation is open until the 12th of January and there is a real focus on the quality of student outcomes as expressed in metrics on continuation, completion and progression. Uh, There was also also this week, a parallel announcement from Universities UK of the establishment of an advisory group to develop a statement of intent uh, with a view to eventually having a charter that clarified and codified the way universities review and improve their own provision. 
um, uh, sort of predictably, the way it's been covered in the uh, in the press has uh, really focused on the uh, spectre of the Mickey Mouse course. And there's been plenty up on the Wonky site this week, looking at it from different perspectives in terms of how we might uh, define a poor quality or low value course to what the UUK proposals might look like. The you mentioned the Mickey, Mickey Mouse courses. I mean, it, it almost looked like that was what the the, the lines that had been briefed from the from the regulator to the press. I mean, it was it was Mickey Mouse courses all over all over the newspapers the other day, which is, is is always a really grim experience for people that work in in higher education because you know I don't think anyone's going to be claiming to run a so called Mickey Mouse course, and just the whole idea is kind of laden with a uh, a kind of sense of of condemnation. I mean, we all we all know the kind of courses the Telegraph don't like uh i mean paul are you running any mickey mouse courses at reading yeah we'd like to have a little uh, line on our website that we don't run mickey mouse courses um i, I mean I, I, over the years because my background is a, as a television producer and film director um and ran a couple of um uh, skill set screen academies in other universities I, I, I just never engaged with that that dialogue and i, I regularly was phoned up by journalists mostly for i have to say mostly from the telegraph wanting to talk about mickey mouse courses i mean it if you don't engage with it, I always think it will go away. I mean, in television and journalism in particular, it was quite difficult because, you know, going back in my career, like 25 years, there weren't that many um, really good journalists who come out of a, you know, a course that was run for kind of media studies or student. But over the years, of course, there are now, if you look at a host of journalists, really good journalists, and they came out of that wave of those type of courses. So I always just smile smugly and think, you know, this is just a, this is a, a non-starter in, in, in terms of a, a discussion. Mm. But there is a drive from government, isn't there, Selena, to, to crack down on low-value courses. And um, I think a fair interpretation might be that this is an attempt by OFS to operationalize that to some extent and, and this, this focus on outcomes really is kind of the only way of, of doing that but it's it's kind of fraught with problems isn't it i mean there, there's all sorts of unintended consequences of of uh, of regulating in this way yeah i mean i think that this as paul said this is this is not a a, a new move in any way this is a actually quite a tired old narrative a tale um, as old as time yeah and i th- i think the other thing around it is that you know largely this is again a government solving perception problems rather than real ones. So actually, if we look at what's happening now this term from a student perspective, I think, you know, that there there probably are some real issues of both quality and value in terms of their student experience. There is nothing here from uh, OFS that would deal with any of these problems in real time. And so often is the case with our sector. Whenever we think about metrics and data, they are looking in the rearview mirror there is very little data that is used in a way to deal with uh, problems that are in real time happening. And, you know, the other thing that I think about this is that if there was a really serious um, concern about, the, you know, a number of courses that were failing students, what, what what's happened to the, you know, subject level TEF? That was supposed to be a way to really get behind the granularity that was needed at subject level. Now, I'm not being a fan of the subject level TEF, 
But, you know, it seems again that there is the policy initiative that kind of works in concept, but once they try to work that through, the technicalities of how they would measure that, how they would use the metrics, what time span they would do that within is what then scuppers the operation of it. Hmm. And I think the other thing to say is, you know, the sector has long signed up and had QAA and in particular the quality Yes, and what's happened to QAA? There's not a mention of it. Not not a mention. I mean, it's absolutely conspicuous by absence and one can't help feeling that there is still some, you know, that that's political and, uh, you know, that that relationship is is yet to be um, really resolved Um, because I think most people within the sector and certainly from an academic quality perspective have got much more confidence of the way in which the quality code deals with the complexity around the quality of the student experience and academic outcomes than these kind of habitual every two years a new kind of policy initiative that seems to come from government via the OFS which deals with ministerial concerns rather than deals with student concerns. I really like the um, the dance that goes on though uh, yeah the dance that happens where you get the announcement and then you try and get another, another announcement out by UUK just to <laughs> so there's that there is it is a literally a dance as and it's about autonomy. It's about autonomous or, uh, institute. You know, are we autonomous? You know, do we have? Are we independent? Well, uh, you know, on one day it seems to suit government that we are. The next, it's not. And it's that dance backwards and forwards as we try to self-regulate and have regulation uh, forced upon us. Uh, we, we saw a similar dance last week with admissions, with everyone trying to outdo each other on uh, on PQA. Um, was, and it's, it's yeah, it was just that was ama- that was probably one of the best because that involved uh, multiple players as well, wasn't it? I mean, the idea of UCAS getting out uh, a comment before before uh, UUK, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I just thought, yeah, it is fascinating, but also tiring. Tiring, and as we'll talk about later on the show, uh, potentially some concerning signs about the direction number 10 might go in um, and the sorts of uh, policies they might pursue, which are kind of firmly in this firmly in this, uh, this ballpark. Um, okay, and, and as, as Selena says, uh, we've, we've been covering this extensively on the site uh, all week, and there are links in the show notes uh, for our detailed commentary and analysis about what's going on. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Natalie Day here from Sheffield Hallam. I'm the Head of Policy and Strategy there. I've got a piece in Wonky this week, which is about the re- how governments and universities could join forces to re- avoid a retention crisis. Now, basically, it's arguing that we need to make policymakers aware of how much is at stake uh, if, indeed, we do have a retention crisis, and really it's making the case that we need to work more effectively together because increased numbers of students dropping out of university into a particularly painful labour market will really have significant consequences for them as individuals, but also making the case that it has the consequences for society at large. That increased attrition will, you know, really does result in wasted potential, wasted learning and wasted opportunity for which we all pay a really steep price. So it's important that governments and universities do sort of work together on a more joint approach around sort of a common purpose, around a commitment to consistency and clarity, and around really working out a new mode of working together to cope with this increasing uncertainty that we're all working with in order to avoid a retention crisis. I'm Dr Michelle Morgan, and I'm a student experience transition specialist. I'm currently a higher education consultant, but prior to that, I was associate professor, associate dean at a post-92 university. In the last week, government has provided universities with guidance on how to get our students home. And there has been the announcement that a vaccine will soon be available. 
This has understandably injected hope across the nation that by the spring, we may be able to resume some sort of normality, whatever that will mean for society and higher education. However, we know that the bulk of our students will not be a priority for the vaccine, meaning that COVID-19 will continue to have impact in halls of residence, on our campuses and in towns and cities, regardless of the gigantic efforts made by universities. Yet there is little strategic national level discussion about what we do in January when students resume their studies and when we expect the arrival of the next tranche of new undergraduate and postgraduate students. The start of the term is only eight weeks away. So my piece this week talks about why we need to plan for January now and the top five action points we need to address if we are to resume study safely and support our students and staff. Next up, IDP Connect has released global polling of 5,000 international applicants, um, offer holders and students about their plans for next year. Paul, talk us through that. Yeah, sure. This is, again, uh, the research that, we, that was released this, this morning um, is by IDP Connect, um, poll of over 5,000 international students <coughs> drawn, you have to say, from their applicants, offer holders and students, primarily in India and primarily postgraduate students. Um, and what they're, what we're looking at or what that, that research is looking at is, will they come? It's essentially, will international students uh, uh, go to the, their destinations of choice? And it looks at um, the UK, the US, uh, and then Southern Hemisphere, uh, New Zealand and Australia. But um, it's showing that there's basically, uh, I don't think any of the, anything that's there is that surprising. Um, 80% of those uh, asked intend to start their studies as planned. This is looking forward to January. And there's been a, this is a, an increased number since they did the last, I think the eight, the April 2020 and the June 2020. They've, they've been <clears throat> tracking what international students are thinking of doing. And I remember wrapped up in this is also, you know, there are all sorts of things that, that are wrapped up in that around when people say what they're going to do and what they actually do. But I mean, it, it's a positive um, sign in lots of ways, willingness, increasing willingness to study online, uh, they'll, uh, as long as it's a transition to face-to-face teaching, a tolerance of online t- uh, learning that wasn't there before. Um, and, and acceptance of quarantine has been something that happens within a pandemic. Uh, so, I mean, I, I just thought it was, it was kind of interesting, but sort of didn't tell me anything I didn't know already. Mm. Is, it sort of, is it backing up what you're seeing um, in your own institution? Yeah, I think actually, if you look at again anecdotally, uh, uh, although I mean it's backed up with data as well, what was seen, I think the interesting thing is this: it really had a lot of the stuff that IDP Connect come. It's a preponderance of uh, of Indian students in the in the in the in the sample, so one always has to look at that. But uh, I mean, if you think of what's happening in China for us, Chinese students are continuing to arrive um, to study at Henley Business School at University of Reading, and they're arriving weekly. And because they're, they're arriving from a very what they regard as a very safe place to to, to travel to the UK, which is less safe. But we, the thing that's for us, we've noted is that they are arriving. They just continue to arrive. Um, I mean, some of the, some of the data is interesting. I, the the overall response or the perception of the UK's response to the coronavirus is is bad. It's, that's not a big surprise. Um, but we come out ahead against uh, about against America. Do you think there is? Uh, I mean, you know, Amer- America has seen a dramatic fall off um, of international students this year, and uh, Canada too. I mean, they're you know they're, they're essentially closed. Um, do you think we're going to see a bit of a boost overall this year, despite the challenges because of these these other markets essentially faring worse and and, and shutting down harder? Yeah, I mean, I do think that. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, the type of job I've got, I am you know not innocent and not ignorant. Of, I, I am eternally optimistic. Uh, 
And I, I, I do see when I'm traveling around the world, especially in um, South Asia and Southeast Asia, students who want to come to the UK because of the quality of the education. Sometimes we don't do ourselves any favors because of the, the various mess that we've been put into by government policy over the, over the last five or six years. Um, but I, I know there's the desire to travel to the UK, uh, and because of what was happening under President Trump in the US and then, the Chinese kind of Australian uh, tiff, um, then th- th- that's that's played out in our favour. So one, one has to be thankful for small mercies at the moment. Mm. Biden could reverse that trend, though, couldn't he? <laughs> I'm still, uh, Mark. I think I, I've heard you talk on one of the other uh, one of the other podcasts. Uh, let's face, it, let's 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 just celebrate. Let's celebrate what happened in the US last week. I, I'm not I'm not in the position to sort of start pulling that one to bits yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. It's good news. It's good news. The Let's thing- talk. Go on, Sue. Sorry, I was just going to say that I think the thing is actually, and this is the, the the thing that goes through my mind in terms of the American question is, you know, the once confidence of populations have been lost, it's very difficult to bring them back. And actually, we all know that the response to the pandemic can be led by government, but it can't be completed by government. And I I think we've experienced on a much more minor scale, something similar here since the Cummings Barnard Castle episode. But the other thing is that just in terms of business more generally, you know, recovery has never been about actually just the ability to open up. Uh, and I think it's much the same in this study here in terms of the feedback from international applicants. Recovery is about consumer confidence. And I think those countries that are focused on that will see recovery much, much quicker than those that have simply relied on the kind of regulatory controls as to whether some, you know, a business is allowed to open. Um, and I think we've got to bear that in mind, uh, the nature of kind of consumer confidence and the feelings of psychological safety and care when we think about how we give international applicants confidence that we will continue to be um, a safe place with a high quality student experience in the future. Yeah, and you look if you look in the research, the, you know it's one one of the bits that the UK does uh, better in is that sort of uh, better than the southern hemisphere. Really, is that we 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 see we seem to be um, viewed as having better or at least having less restrictive travel policies uh, in place than what's going on in, in particular in Australia and New Zealand at the moment. Um, but the other thing, sort of odd thing in there, is that the only thing that the US seem to do sort of better on or well at was the increased consumer confidence in the economy in the economy the the shape of the economy which i I looked at i couldn't quite make out that maybe it's relative (laughs) (laughs) the 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 particular problem is that paul around around the end of this year and i'm just interested i'm genuinely i I don't know what what's going to happen here because um we've obviously got the the student travel window uh coming up and the mass testing regime um spinning up at, at campuses everywhere but there are particular problems aren't there for international students like for example the lateral flow tests which a lot of airlines don't accept as as kind of uh, okay for, for fit to fly so i guess i'm interested to, to generally know how, how how you're working on that at reading and and how we you know how we, we should be getting international students home and then back again at the end of this year and the start of next yeah I mean, it, it is a problem. It's, um, I've, you know, literally come from a, an early morning sort of breakfast meeting about particularly this. Um, of course, a lot of the UK government guidance sort of avoided a conversation with international students. 
I mean, you could say that was you know, that was okay. I mean, I don't think it was okay. There was, it, it, in fact, when it talked about, it seemed to be addressing anybody that was going overseas. It, it didn't say winter skiing holidays, but it, it felt like, it felt like it was talking to home students about should they wish to travel overseas. Obviously, if you've got international students here, they may wish to go home at Christmas. I mean, at University of Reading, one of the things we're realising is that there will be more students staying over. At Christmas, we normally have around about a thousand students who stay in in our facilities over Christmas. Anyway, we're reckoning that number is going to be higher because students will choose to stay here rather than go away and come back for obvious reasons, not just about what happens at this end as they leave in the UK, but their own country going back in and then coming out again. So, I think that's going to be one of the main things. Um, and then the universities that um, rely on. Um, large January entry that's going to be also be a challenge you're right around the lateral flow test that that's been brought in set this mass testing regime that's been brought in so quickly you can see that on the hour people are trying to make sense of all the supplementary questions that come out of it and uh, I'm, I'm expecting some more guidance uh, from government and within the university over the next couple of days hello Jim from the team here uh, we've got another wonky at home event coming up Uh, on Student Experience 4.0. COVID-19 has sharpened the focus on universities' engagement with digital technology. The great online pivot early in the pandemic sparked plenty of innovation and showed universities just what's possible, but it's also exposed some of the gaps in universities' digital capabilities. The student experience of the future may not be wholly conducted online, but it will be digitally enabled at every stage. The campus of the future might not exist solely in the cloud, but it will be smart. And the future university won't be staffed by bots, but students' interactions with academics and professional staff will be underpinned by emerging digital technologies. So at our event, in partnership with Salesforce.org, we'll assess the parameters of the next normal for universities, how digital technology will shape and enhance the student experience in the future, and we'll explore what universities can do now to get ahead of the curve. That's Wonky at Home, Student Experience 4.0, preparing for the next normal. Full details and how to get hold of your tickets, as ever, at wonky.com forward slash events. Right, the Office for the Independent Adjudicator has released a briefing note on course and provider closure, uh, as well as its perspective on the sensational closure of GSM London last year. Selena, talk us through it. Yeah, two briefing notes from OIA. Uh, and as you say, Mark, the sensational closure of GSM. Um, they are very helpful briefing notes. I think um, there's obviously kind of the, the sort of salutary lessons, uh, I think, in terms of OIA's own anticipation that there will be other closures uh, ahead of us, uh, whether that be courses or campuses or whole organisations, institutions. Um, and then, you know, that's the kind of lessons lessons to be learnt report. And I think some of the headlines in terms of what should be done in those situations to best protect students will not be a surprise. What is a surprise is uh, that these are not routinely followed because of the existence of uh, student protection plans. So some of the issues that they raise actually wouldn't necessarily be re reflected in an agreed university SPP. I think the, uh, the other report that they've done, which is a much closer reflection on the experience 
of GSM, which is a small private provider, around 3,000 students based in London. Um, OIA actually said that they were very glad to have been including on the task force that gathered when the closure was happening. But one of the reasons that they state is that it absolutely focused minds on doing the right thing and kept student concerns at the forefront of people's minds. Now, presumably, there won't always be a task force. There won't always be a representative from the sector complaint body to sit there and focus minds on doing the right things. Um, but I think it's a... Um, it, it carries a number of case studies around different students, their complaints and how the OIA uh, suggested the institution should respond to those complaints. And in quite a few cases, there was a recommendation of some level of uh, financial compensation or tuition fee refund. But those students are the unsecured creditors. Now, anyone who's ever been in a situation of liquidation will know that unsecured creditors rarely get 100% of the money that they're owed. And I couldn't help but think there's there's almost another report to be written here, another briefing note, which is what happened next in the stories of those students? GSM was well known for taking, you know, a, very much a WP cohort of students. And, you know, for, for it was, so it's largely mature. Um, I, I just kept thinking, you know, it's it's a very tough thing when you, you, you've gone through this situation again, just sort of emotionally. Um, it will have taken a lot of investment, not just financial investment for these students to have started their courses, never mind gone through the trauma of closure and transfer to another institution. And I'm sure there will be some success stories that come out of that. Um but I think the point is, is that, you know, there is no amount of compensation, financial compensation that is ever really going to um, uh, really, you know, deal with the level of upset and trauma from a student perspective. Um, and I think, you know, the point really should be that there has to be much, much stronger protections for institutions in terms of not getting into this place. Now, I think we know that one of the tensions has always been, should... Um, the Office for Students raise concerns about finances at a point at which it may well send the institution that is financially fragile into a much stronger, uh, uh, you know, downward curve. Um, but I think, you know, if it is the Office for Students, then to me, the onus of responsibility is in doing what is best by students. Um, again, there is um, some uh, uh Blogs now on the wonky site. Jim, Jim Dickinson has done a good one that is published on Thursday morning. And actually, one of the things I'll, I'll quote from Jim's article, but he says this, you know, arguably the most important thing you can do in any kind of crisis review is to ask yourself whether it can happen again. And I think, you know, having read this, the conclusion would be, yes, all of this could happen again. But, you know, this was just a small private provider with 3000 students. I think the real worry is this could happen again at some scale. Fascinating. Uh, there's a lot here and a lot, lot jumped out at me uh, from this report. I think, Celia, you're so right that um, we've got to see a, a final part to this report tracking what happened to these students. I think, that, I think that's going to be really critical for the sector's learning. It seems to me that obviously the ORI has is, is, is got this year very much in mind because we've obviously got institutions in, in some financial trouble um, and we've also got quite a lot of um, changes to uh, what was promised in, in terms of the student experience because of COVID, naturally. A couple of things jumped out to me about that, though. So, so Paul, I mean, one of the things was the responsibility for, for the um, 
for the validating partner. So, you know, where you've got a relationship with, with a college, um, I mean, the OIA suggests or, or some other institution that you're responsible for validating as a university, um, the OIA places, um, perhaps more responsibility on, on you as that, as that validating partner for the continuing, uh, success of, of students. And that's, uh, it's, it's probably not a game changer, but it's probably it's probably going to to give some pause for thought, isn't it, about some of these partnerships? Well, yeah, I think what's interesting about this is we're talking about a private provider in the UK. Of course, you know, in my work in various universities, we're, we're working with private providers in South Asia, um, Southeast Asia, where where there were many more, and you could arguably argue actually more risky because you're doing it at distance. But the the answer to the question is, I think that's actually right. I think if you're val- you know got a validation uh, agreement um, with a, a private, uh, doesn't it, private public provider who gets into financial trouble in terms of seeing those students through on your awards, then I, I do think you have a responsibility. And I, I, in fact, anywhere where I've worked, we would take that very very seriously because. As Selena's saying, it's really about you know it's about having a responsibility for their journey. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't see anything. I think the trouble with this argument normally is because it, it gets dropped into a private public discussion. You know, and, and my view generally has been around a mixed economy is a good thing, mainly because internationally that's what I'm dealing with all the time. And lest we forget, uh, you know, a large number of our uh, UK universities do similar arrangements with private providers are, uh, offshore outside of the UK and uh, don't have any problem with that. That's part of their internationalisation agenda. It's also yeah, um, the the monies from that are going to st- straight to their bottom line to allow them to invest in all sorts of things, including the research agendas they have. And that has to come with the responsibility. I have, I have no, no no problem with that. I mean, Sina, one of the other things that, that jumped out was this question of, of redress because – um, I mean, you, you, you have to wonder if, um, OI is expecting lots of complaints this year because, um, I guess what they're saying is that, you know, it's, it's legitimate. Um, you know, if, if you've tried everything, um, you tried to live up to what you promised, but you've had to make a change and you've, um, you know, you've, you've sought consent. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the facts have changed and uh, I, I can imagine lots of examples of this in, in kind of the COVID crisis. Um, it's, it's okay as long as you've, you've offered some redress. Um, re- reasonable redress. I can't remember the exact language to to students. Um, you've got to wonder whether a lot of the complaints this year might be about whether you know. Sure, you know we understand that you had to make changes, but um, that redress wasn't wasn't quite good enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is always the um, problem with the language of kind of reasonableness. Uh, you know, have you made reasonable efforts to communicate? Have you reasonable efforts to uh, make some form of um, alternative arrangement? And, and and I think, you know, that is a very, very subjective thing. And actually, one of the things that is brought out is it very much depends on your own individual circumstances, whether an institution's attempt to make some reasonable change is suitable for you. So the example uh, in terms of GSM and the uh, responsibilities um, of, of the validating provider was those students could have transferred to that university. However, it was too far away for many of the students who um, were based in London. So, you know, it, it, it 
yeah, it might be okay if you're an 18 year old and you've got, you know, sufficient funds that it doesn't matter where you study and you don't need to rely on a part time job and you haven't got caring responsibilities. But obviously, there is a, a real diversity in students' experience and what they need to be successful at university. So I, I think there's that angle too in terms of the. Um, processes for complaints and indeed the standards of adjudicating around complaints, that it, it is still highly subjective in my view. And I think one of the things that if I was, you know, I don't know, at NUS or a, a kind of student facing body, I mean, I think this is an area that over the next few years really, really does need to be beefed up. And I think students will need far more external and independent advocacy. Hello and welcome to Yes But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment that is the only part of the higher education sector not currently reviewing admissions. There's always an underlying theme in Mickey Mouse course type stories that the growth in student numbers over recent years has been focused on subject areas with low entry requirements. So I've plotted the growth over two years in each top level subject area against the percentage of entrance with three A's or above at A level or the equivalent. So is it less demanding subject areas that are seeing the bulk of recent student number growth? Does it correlate? It's an, inter- it's an interesting question, uh, and, and we're doing uh, similar research within the University of Reading. I mean, I, I don't think it correlates in terms of the, where that where that growth is. Again, it's very difficult. I'm in a re- working in a research intensive university with fairly high tariff, um, so what we're seeing is increased uh, interest in the in programs right across the board. So I, I mean, of course. Quite often, you know, the government agenda is that it's, the increase is all in the lower tariff, um, Mickey Mouse provision, sorry to use that phrase. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure that correlates. I'm going to be honest and say I never really even understand the question um, when it comes to this game. But I'm going to say, having consulted with my dog who's lying here behind me, that it correlates. The answer is No. Not in a statistically significant way. R squared is about 0.2 for P being less than 0.05. But the trend that does exist is positive. Subject areas with larger proportions of well-qualified entrants actually appear to be growing faster. Data is from the most recent available HESA collections, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, I caught up with Jonathan Simons from Public First, uh, to talk about the big reset at number 10, what it means, the personalities that are changing, and uh, what that might mean for policy over the next few months. Yeah, so a huge amount has changed. Uh, the most important thing that's changed is you may have noticed there was one or two small news articles about the fact that Dominic Cummings has now left number 10. Uh, he has left number 10 along with Lee Kane, who was the uh, slightly lesser known director of communications. This is significant beyond parlor game politics. This is significant because uh, Dominic Cummings in particular was a major driver of the Prime Minister's agenda, um, both in electoral terms, but also in policy terms. And some of the issues he was very interested in were the higher education issue and, and the science issue in particular. So what has happened on the back of that, and indeed the reasons why he left, we should say allegedly to all of these things, but the reasons why he left and why Lee Kane left were because of a feeling that the general government approach towards public policy was not sufficiently bearing fruit, uh, that they'd fallen out in part over personality, but also partly in, partly fallen out over the, the direction of travel. And so what we're seeing now is lots of discussion about the so-called reset of government policy. Now, 
it remains to be seen whether any of this actually does amount to a concrete shift or whether this is just different factions fighting for influence. But I think it is reasonably clear that the Prime Minister, uh, assuming that we come out uh, in 2021 with some form of a COVID vaccine, with some form of a Brexit deal, and things sort of revert back to normal, that the Prime Minister wants to take a different approach towards the remainder of this parliamentary term in the run-up to the 2024 election. Hmm. And so some of the some of the characters you mentioned, Dominic Cummings. Um, uh, I think a lot of the a lot of the research and science community is kind of hoping against hope he doesn't reappear as head of the ARPA. That, that one <laughs> mentioned a few times. Um, Lee Kane, as you say, is 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 out. Um, who else is on their way out or expected to to be out in in this kind of reset? So I think in terms of it, it is possible that there may be some subsequent shuffling around the more sort of junior and middle ranks of people um there again were lots of rumors flying around that for example david frost who's the brexit negotiator may be leaving certainly in effect one would hope his job is effectively done in a month or so's time anyway uh there were discussions that other slightly more junior people in the in in the number 10 team were going to be moving around but i think the issue is is not particularly who else may leave in so much as where the power is going to lie so the thing about number 10 is it is a feudal court. There is no org chart or not an org chart that actually makes a difference. The only thing that matters are, uh, to misquote Hamilton, uh, that you need to be in the room where it happens, uh, that you are somebody who has the ear of the prime minister, that you are somebody whose advice is listened to, whether that's written advice or verbal advice, that you are somebody who can uh, reasonably claim to know what the prime minister thinks about things and in turn communicate that to the rest of the Whitehall. And if you have that, then you are in a position of huge power, regardless of your formal seniority. Uh, and at the moment, the uh, discussion going on within number 10 is who has such power. Hmm. And as that relates to kind of policy as, as it might um, be reset, there's a whole bunch of things related to, to higher education and education more broadly, isn't there? Because if, if policy is shifted perhaps towards some backbench MPs that, that Boris wants to keep on side, we've, we've heard education mentioned as part of that effort um, to give them some kind of power back over decisions, having, having there been you know, several months of disquiet over uh, the coronavirus response. Um, do you think it's realistic that, that, that MPs might take more of a direct role in policymaking as opposed to the the policy unit, for example. Yes. So there are there are there are. Uh, it has been briefed out that there will be this new MPs uh, task force on education and skills, and there are three Tory MPs who've been named as potentially being part of it. Uh, those are Jonathan Gullis, uh, David Johnson, and Miriam Cates. Now they are, in truth, uh, three Tory MPs from quite a small group who are interested in education and skills. Uh, David Johnson used to run a social mobility charity before he came into Parliament. Uh, Miriam Cates was involved in education and Jonathan Gullis, probably the best known of those three, uh, used to be a teacher and indeed a, a teaching trade union rep, which is not a normal career path to being a Tory MP. I think in truth that group is a bit of a sinecure. It's a bit of a slightly uh, glorified title you give to some MPs who are important in the parliamentary party. You keep them on board, you ask them to do some work, you promise to read what they've written, you probably even do read what they've written, um, but it's not going to have any formal power. Um, I think the formal power will still reside principally within the policy unit. So Alison Wolfe remains in the policy unit. Um, she's an interesting one because she she only ever does three days a week that's her contract she's still a serving academic uh and she although she is a political appointee she's not a political operator she is as as listeners will know a real higher education and skills expert and she is in number 10 to do higher education and skills policy and she remains uh very exercised with delivering the 
skills white paper, FE white paper, HE strategy document, whatever combination we are expecting over the next few months. And so she will continue to be there and she will continue to deliver that. Uh, there are various other people in number 10 who continue to have an interest in education policy, Manira Mirza, uh, whose star is on the rise uh, and is being tipped as potentially being the new chief of staff, has got a strong interest in education policy. Uh, and there are various other people in number 10 as well that, that, that keep an interest in it. So I think safe to say that number 10 are still going to hold education policy reasonably tightly. Having said that, uh, Ian Mansfield within the DFE is also a major, major player here, and he will continue to be so. And if anything, his position has probably been strengthened um, merely by the fact that he's still there whilst other people have left. The question for that will be is if there is a reshuffle in the new year, uh, will Ian leave as special advisors often do leave when their ministers leave? I'd expect there to be quite a big ministerial reshuffle in the DFE. If that happens, will Ian leave? Does that happen before the various strategy documents are published we don't know uh but obviously that's the big issue with departmental special advisors is they're more reliant on their ministers than number 10 are mm. the, the other name that we've not mentioned is, is neil o'brien who's been talked about as as kind of head of a of a new uh, policy board outside out of number 10 and he's very much a university skeptic i think it's fair to say yes that's right and actually um you're quite right neil is a, is a very very important part of this 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 puzzle so the suggestion is that they are going to have a policy board as well as a policy unit and as well as policy task forces um and and neil is tipped as the chair of that now i i should say with the caveat that i know neil reasonably well and, and have worked with him in the past i think he's excellent i think he's an outstanding appointment he is a he is a thinker as they say uh and he is somebody that, that, that thinks very deeply about public policy you are right though and and you know, this is not particularly inside gossip. You can read what he's written many, many times on the topic of universities, both under his own name, but also through the Onward Think Tank, um, which he co-set up with Will Tanner, of course, again, another uh, former number 10 special advisor under Theresa May, and, and the on, what, we, what we might call the Onward view of the world uh, as relates to higher education policy is quite sceptical. So they've done a lot of work on, on low-value education, for example. They are very cautious about uh, international students, particularly those who come from China. Onward is definitely on the China sceptic uh, wing of the Conservative Party, and that obviously has big implications for HE. Uh, they've done quite a lot of stuff around uh, universities closing off avenues for bright kids from deprived backgrounds and indeed he uh, Neil wrote a piece for Conservative Home uh, just another a few days ago which was essentially his job ad for this uh, his job application for this role and admittedly it was only a couple of sentences and, and, and there's always a danger of overpassing these but he specifically talks about education and and references the big higher education debate that has to be happened which is more or less do we continue as we are or do we by we meaning the government make a big move uh, on low value courses and, and more people doing technical education and fewer people doing traditional level six. Hmm. And, and and what's your view about whether there will really be the the headspace or the bandwidth or the political capital to actually tackle that? So this is now this that that is an agenda that's now been talked about, hasn't it, for for several years by this government and the, and its predecessors. Um, but we've seen very little actual meat on the bones when it comes to policy. I mean, it's, it's a quite a lot of aggro, isn't it? Because you'd be taking on not only taking on universities, but taking on all their allies in the Lords uh, and plenty of Tory MPs um, and members of the, people in the party who. Um, like David Willits, I'm thinking of like Joe Johnson, you know, who who are influential in their own right and would push back strongly against that agenda. 
Yeah, you're, you're, you're completely right. So I think the first thing to say is that there are multiple strains of thought within the Conservative Party as relates to higher education. And, and, and we can discern some of those. There is the, the onward wing, as we may call it. There's the, uh, I suppose, what we could call the post-liberal wing, the, the, the Goodhart wing, although David Goodhart himself is not obviously a Tory MP or even a Tory member. Um, there is, I suppose, what you could call the Willits or the Willetsian wing, uh, which is probably the most supportive of, of the fairly traditional small l liberal view towards higher education and there are there are infinite uh variants and currents in between that i suppose so 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 yes you're completely right it's not a done deal that if they wanted to do something like that that the tory party particularly in the lords would wave it through uh, and there's obviously a lot of lords who uh, have been vice chancellors as well i think the bigger question for me on this agenda well it, it, the agenda is twofold the bigger question is twofold for me the first is for all the noise that the government has been making about free speech, for example, and about culture wars in the last year. Is that a substitute for activity? Or is that actually foregrounding actual things they want to change? Because it is possible that the only strategy is to create sound and fury and to not actually have any intention to do anything about it, but you achieve your electoral gain by shouting loudly about people you don't like and your voters don't like. If that is the case, you don't have to do anything else. You can continue to shout about them. On the other hand, the, the reset narrative seems to suggest that they may dial down the culture war. Then the question is, do you dial it down and let universities get on? Or do you dial it down and actually start to do policy? And if you're Neil O'Brien, who is not a natural cultural warrior, but is a deep policy thinker, you may conclude that actually you want to seek change more quietly, but potentially more effectively. And so I think some of the straws in the wind on this are things like the OFS consultation on uh, continuation rates, on uh, graduate employment, some of the work that Universities UK have now kicked off on, on low value. If I were wanting in my exalted position as head of the new PM's policy board to actually make things happen, it would be a consistent strategy for me to dial down the shouting at student unions, but dial up things that I may seek to do via legislation, via the response to the auger review, via the funding controls that sit within me, via the regulatory power of the OFS. That is actually in truth how you achieve much more significant change, or at least threaten that change such that the universities do what you want them to do anyway. Fascinating. Um, and, and finally, just on the on the reshuffle, which we expect in the new, new year, don't we? I mean, it's almost received wisdom that Gavin Williamson, Education Secretary, is likely to be out in that. Um, the Times caused a minor panic, I think, in the uh, education Twitter a few days ago when it suggested Michael Gove might be making a return. What, do, you, do you think that's likely? I I think that is highly unlikely. Uh, much as much as on a personal level, I might I might enjoy it immensely. Um, I think that it is highly unlikely. I suspect Michael has 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 done his time in education for good or for ill, and and people have very strong views as to which of those it was. Um, I I think that, that I think that we will see quite a significant shift in personnel, and uh, I think we may see of the of the five ministers in DfE. Leaving alone Baroness Berridge in the Lords, we could we could conceivably see all four of the other ministers move. So that includes Michelle Donnellan uh, and Julian Keegan. Traditionally, junior ministers don't stay around for that long. I think the question for them will be: uh, have have the big pieces of white papery, which are sitting on Department for Education servers at the moment, do they get out? under this set of ministers or not. So we have the spending review uh, on the 25th of November. That is in some senses going to be a bit of a damp squib because it is only a one-year settlement. So we're not going to see huge changes to higher education funding next week. We have, we believe, a skills white paper, some sort of HE strategy document and some sort of formal auger response. 
at least two of those may be combined into the same document. We're now not expecting those until January, February next year. When might the government do a reshuffle? I actually would be surprised if it was that early next year. They need to get the Brexit deal done, uh, assuming that they do want to do a deal. Um, they are now rumours that there is going to be an adjustment period, which actually takes us slightly into the new year because they're just running out of time to get it ratified. So let's assume that January is taken up with getting all that done. They will almost certainly want to wait until the vaccine, touch wood, starts to come through and comes on stream. Uh, that takes us through to about March. We've got the budget due in March. Again, if you're Rishi Sunak, you're probably wanting to make a bold statement. I would expect we'd see a reshuffle round and about March time. Um, that probably means there is time to push out these HE documents under the, uh, the old regime. Uh, and that would be my best guess as to what we'll see. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Monkey Show via Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Monkey Show, drop us an email at team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Selena, Paul, Jonathan and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay safe.